Well, this is the last part. We've made it all the way to the end, seven of seven. Uh, and we've been studying the book of Thessalonians in a series called Living in Light of the End. And tonight I want to take just a few minutes at the, the top of this to uh, just do a little tiny bit of review. And we do a little bit every week just to kind of get us all on the same page. Uh, but tonight's important because we'll be concluding Paul's writings to this wonderful body of believers in the first century. From the day, from the very moment Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers throughout all the eras and all the ages of church history, they have lived in expectancy of his return. It's so obvious when you open the page, of every page of the New Testament, when you read the writings of these people, when you read the writings of Paul and Peter and James and John, what you see is they're expecting this Jesus to return. They say, we will see him and we will behold him and we will be caught up and, and we need to be ready. It's, it's, they're expecting it. If they expected his return 2,000 years ago, and we're living in a generation where we see so many of the signs of the times occurring all around us that the Bible decrees then it's incumbent on all of us that we need to be ready for his appearing. The hope that those believers had is the hope that we share. And that hope of his coming, it should impact every day. It should impact every decision, even every detail of our lives. That's the point. And uh, I've said it every, every week, I think, that keeping your focus on that day can be challenging in a world where you're just trying to get through this day. Uh, that can be a very big challenge. And so in these two letters, as we've studied and we've walked through them verse by verse now, Paul corrects some misconceptions and some misunderstandings about the coming of the Lord. Throughout his first letter, he commends these believers because they're living in light of the end. And uh, we've studied how Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica prematurely. His enemies swept in and they persecuted him and it was that threat of his life that he was forced to leave. And so he writes back to them, these two epistles, and he defends his ministry among them because it's been under attack, it's been maligned, and his motives have been questioned. He defends his ministry. He sends his protege Timothy back to pastor them and shepherd them. Paul promises over and over again in these two letters to pray for them. He encourages them to live holy lives. And most of all, he said, you got to be ready for the rapture because that's when we get reunited with our loved ones who've gone on before, and that's when we get to see Jesus one more time. Satan hindered Paul's plans to get back to Thessalonica, so Paul just turned around and said, if you're going to hinder me, I'm going to write letters. And the devil lost on that one because we're still studying Paul's letters 2,000 years later. I like that. Paul's second letter that we uh, began last week. It was written not long after the first one because there were still many people in the assembly that were confused about the second coming of Christ. And somebody pretending to be Paul had written a letter to these believers and declared to them that you've missed the coming of the Lord and you're now living in the day of the Lord, in the time of judgment, in the great tribulation. And because they were already suffering intense persecution, in that world of Paul's day, it was pretty easy for somebody to convince them, you missed it. 
you're in the great tribulation, all this persecution, uh, that, that's because you missed the coming of the Lord. But Paul had already told them in his first letter that God's wrath would not be poured out on the church. He said in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. And he said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, God has not appointed us to wrath. And so Paul writes this second letter, 2 Thessalonians, in an attempt to straighten out all of the confusion. And we talked about this last week, and it's so important. If you only get really one big idea out of this series, this would be the big idea that you need to understand as you read your Bible and as you negotiate Scripture, you need to understand this. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes the coming of the Lord. That's what we call the rapture. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he amplifies that and he describes the day of the Lord, which is God's judgment on sinners. The saints' misunderstanding of the coming of the Lord, the rapture, versus the day of the Lord when God pours out his judgment, that led to all of the confusion they're facing in their time. And similar errors, similar misunderstandings about the scripture, even today, they lead to errors in Bible interpretation. Paul declares that the coming of the Lord must happen first. So there is no way that the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, that time when God rights wrongs and, and, and judges the world, and judges sinners, judges the devil, that day cannot have happened yet because the coming of the Lord hasn't happened yet. In other words, Paul's saying the day of the Lord, God's judgment, cannot happen before the coming of the Lord. That's not to say the church won't have persecution. That's not to say the church won't have trials. That's not even to say the church won't have enemies. But what it's saying is that there is coming a time when God is going to not hold back his judgment any longer. That is the day of the Lord. But before that day of the Lord, when judgment is poured out, the church is going to experience the coming of the Lord. That is what Paul calls our blessed hope. And everything in me leaps to say, yes, it is a blessed hope. I've stood by too many hospital beds, bodies racked with disease, breathing final breaths. I've stood here as your pastor, along with Pastor Jack, and we've preached far too many funerals. And we've bid fond farewells to beautiful saints of God from this sanctuary, from this spot right here. And I stand in total agreement with Paul, and I say, yes, it is a blessed hope. Sometimes it's about all that keeps us going when we look at the crushing loss of a loved one, but the blessed hope is what sustains us. I'm grateful for the promise of the coming of the Lord. So Paul wants to clarify, and I want to, here's where I want to just review last week just enough to get you up to speed, and then we'll finish out Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. He says in chapter 2 and verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. Don't get messed up on this point. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord, the day of judgment. That day shall not come except unless, until there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The Bible also calls him the beast or the antichrist. 
And he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or anything that is worshipped in relative to the true God. So that he as God will sit in the temple of God, that's Jerusalem, the Jewish temple, showing himself that he is God. I made this point last week and please think about this. Those events are prophesied to happen after the rapture. In fact, Paul says the reason we know the rapture hasn't happened is those things haven't happened yet. And so think about this. After the rapture, leading up to the judgment that's going to fall on this world, we will see these signs happen. Paul says, first of all, there's going to be a great falling away. He's not talking about a handful of backsliders here or there. He's talking about the whole world, that there will be this falling away from any semblance of godliness or morality or truth. There's going to be this great falling away, and the world will literally be able to pledge allegiance to this ruler who is everything that is anti-God, anti-truth, anti-morality. They will love him and follow him. That's going to happen after the rapture. Paul said there's going to be this one world leader, this antichrist, this beast, this son of perdition. He will be a one world leader. He will be able to issue an edict and the whole world will have to do what his government says. And it will happen after the rapture. Paul said that man, that antichrist, the beast, the son of perdition, the world leader... He will actually, and the Bible amplifies this in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, and in other places, but he will actually, uh, he will set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem to be worshipped as God in the Jewish temple. That will happen after the rapture. So you've got these signs. Paul mentions three. There's many. He said these are going to happen uh, before the day of the Lord, but after uh, the, the coming of the Lord. That, that day can't come. There, there's going to be these things. Uh, so you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not experiencing the tribulation because these things have to happen before we get there. And he names them, and we've just gone through them. But think with me. We're already seeing the, the persecution of godliness. We're already seeing the promotion of evil and immorality. We're already seeing this great falling away from truth and even common sense. We're already seeing the, the beginnings, the machine of the one world government coming together. It's been talked about a lot even during the pandemic we've been through this year. How easy it would be to just have one central government so there's no differences, there's no conflict. One guy issues an order and the whole world says, yes, sir, it's already being talked about. And, and we're already seeing the Jews talk about their temple being rebuilt. I've been at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem more than once. I've seen some of the furniture that they've built, some of the articles for worship they've already constructed in preparation for the first, for the third temple, rather, in Jerusalem. And, and so those signs, they are what Paul says, those are going to happen before the day of the Lord. And he also says, the day of the Lord isn't here yet. Because the coming of the Lord has to happen first. Now, now just, just go with me. If the coming of the Lord is next on God's calendar, 
But we're already seeing signs that will follow the coming of the Lord, proceeding and leading up to the day of judgment, the tribulation. If we're already seeing these signs start to pull together, and they're going to happen in their fulfillment after the coming of the Lord... How close must we be right now sitting in church on a Wednesday night to the coming of the Lord if things that the Bible says will happen after the rapture are already beginning to piece together? We're getting closer than we think to the coming of the Lord. These events are prophesied to happen after the coming of the Lord, before the day of the Lord. We're already starting to see them. There's already a falling away from Bible truth. The Antichrist kingdom is already starting to come together. The Jews are already starting to make the furniture for their third temple. So, brothers and sisters, again, Jesus is coming soon. I know the elders preached that to you, and then the elders went and died and went to heaven. And the common theme in the world is, well, where is the promise of his coming? Because the elders that preached it to us, they've fallen asleep and they've gone on to heaven. So where is it? But we are living in that day when the clock of prophecy is ticking down. And, and you know, the scientists have that, what is it called, the doomsday clock and the, uh, for nuclear proliferation, and they keep moving that hand ahead and back. I got one better than that. The prophecy clock is just steadily ticking toward the rapture of the church, which is the next event on God's calendar for his church, bar none. And so we've got to be ready. We went through this little chart last week. I think it's very important that you understand. And First and Second Thessalonians actually set this out. But this is chart form. So over here you've got the coming of the Lord, which we call the rapture. And at the coming of the Lord, Jesus will return in the air and receive his church to him. And that's where we get to join with our loved ones that are gone before us. And this is a coming where he comes secretly for his church. The world will be totally unaware. They'll just know suddenly that millions of people are missing. It'll be panic and pandemonium. Believers at that coming, when we're caught up, we will escape the great tribulation that is coming upon this world. Now that coming, that appearing could happen at any time and it will happen without warning. Paul describes it Jesus describes it as a thief in the night when you're not expecting it. And then we have in 2 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord, especially in chapter 2, and that's why I'm taking a little time to review. It's so critical that you understand this. In 2 Thessalonians, particularly in chapter 2, Paul talks about the day of the Lord. This is when Christ returns to the earth. It's everything that follows the rapture. So it's the tribulation, seven years. It's the millennial reign, a thousand years. It's the battle of Armageddon. It's, it's that end time battle of Gog and Magog. And then finally, it's the great white throne judgment. It's all judgment. It's all God's reign. It's not God's day of mercy. It's God's day of enforcing his reign and pouring out his judgment. You don't want to be here. And so it, it goes throughout until finally, Finally, we end at the very end. The day of the Lord comes to fulfillment. This is when he comes openly 
with the church, specifically at the Battle of Armageddon. And during that great tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon's at the end of the tribulation. Daniel talks about it. Revelation alludes to it. Unbelievers will experience this great tribulation on the earth. And, and the day of the Lord goes from the moment of the rapture all the way through to the, the end of the great tribulation. It's a time of terrible, terrible judgment. I'll end here. There are no prophetic signs left to be fulfilled before the coming of the Lord. The rapture could happen at any moment. But there are prophetic signs Paul named three of them here. There are prophetic signs that must happen before the day of the Lord. God's judgment, the tribulation happens. And so it's very, very important that you distinguish or you can get, you can get confused when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, you, you think it's saying something different. And so doctrines kind of fray here. Because some people read about the day of the Lord and Paul says right here that that day hasn't come yet. It, it can't come until. And people say, well, we're good. We're safe because the rapture can't happen until we see the Antichrist and until we see the Jewish temple and until we see this great falling away and until we see this and this and this. There are good godly men and women who believe that the Lord uh, is going to delay his coming. Some of them believe it'll be in the middle of the tribulation, some at the end of the tribulation. I'm not here to debate them. I'm not here to dispute them. And I'm certainly not here to disrespect them. But I would offer this, that any doctrine that settles you in to a comfort level with being lackadaisical or lazy about the coming of the Lord so that you are not keenly on edge, expecting his return, I think that's a dangerous doctrine. Because in the New Testament, the consensus is we will be caught up. We are looking for him. We are longing for him. Paul expected to be in the rapture, but he died. Some of our pioneer preachers in this province, they expected to go in the rapture. They thought they were closer to the end times than you think you are closer to the end times because you and I are in a generation where the world's trying to lull us to sleep. You've seen so much violence in media that you don't even get concerned about the violence that the Bible talks about that's going to be poured out on this world. You've seen so many movies and so much fiction and so much junk that that this all seems like a big fairy tale to you but it's not a fairy tale the elders were right the apostle Paul was right Peter was right James was right Jude was right the Lord's coming with ten thousands of his saints and we get to be caught up to meet him in the air they were right it's been debated for many years I remember when I went into uh, receive my local license, which is the first step of license in our particular uh, fellowship. The district board, these, these were giant men. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, R.G. Priest and C.B. Dudley and A.W. Post. Not one of them had a first name. It was all initials. <laughs> and I went in to get my license, and it's terrifying um, it was 1983. I went in at district conference. I don't even remember where the district conference was, but I remember that room, and I only got asked one question. The pioneer, the preacher, Mr. Holy Ghost himself, C.B. Dudley said, 
Young man, you one of them post-tribbers? I said, no, sir. Good enough for me. That was the only question I got asked. I have my license. I wasn't a post-tribber. <laughs> We've debated this for years, decades. But let me tell you, every one of the men in that room, although some of them may have differed on prophecy, every one of them lived lives that were keenly aware and keenly ready at any moment for the coming of the Lord. Let's not get lulled to sleep. Paul says, as he starts to wind down chapter 2, he said, don't you remember that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And, and this has been the, the theme of, of, of everything I think I've preached for about two or three weeks now, since November the 29th or 7th, whatever that last Sunday was. Paul said, you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, code the Antichrist kingdom, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that word let you study it, prevent, prohibit, he who now prohibits or prevents the Antichrist kingdom will continue preventing or prohibiting until he be taken out of the way. You know that the devil would love to reveal that man of sin, the Antichrist, the, the beast, the son of perdition. He loves to cause chaos. And the devil knows that when the world worships the Antichrist, what they're really doing is worshiping Satan because he'll be the power behind the Antichrist. He would love to reveal the Antichrist tonight if he could, today if he could, this week if he could, but he can't. And the only reason he can't the only reason the devil is prevented and prohibited from seizing control and implementing the Antichrist's agenda is there's a power, there's a person who prohibits him. It is the Holy Spirit that is active in the church of the living God. And so the devil can't get his agenda together because the church is still here. I know the devil would love to introduce the Antichrist and I know prophecy says the Antichrist is coming. But let me announce to you, the Antichrist could not get his kingdom together with a church numbered in the millions that would pray in Jesus' name and bind him up so he can't do it but one day soon the church he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way when the Holy Spirit takes the church out of this world it's going to be literal hell on earth from that moment forward but we're not bound for the tribulation we are bound for streets of gold and the presence of God and you are the only thing keeping the devil from getting his end time kingdom together so keep on pushing keep on praying keep on living for God and keep on expecting his return and Paul says in the meantime I know you're facing little troubles and I know you're facing persecution opposition but brethren, stand fast. And I want you to hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. He said, I want you to stand fast. That means I want you to persevere. I know it's tough, but persevere. And he uses a, a unique word here. He said, I want you to hold. Literally, 
I want you to seize. I want you to be, it literally means, you can look it up, it means to be harsh or hard or severe. I want you to hold, seize what you have been taught. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. Don't let anybody move you off of it. You seize it. You hold it harshly and hardly if you have to, but you hang on to it because that truth is going to see you through to the rapture. Now, Paul normally ends his epistles with personal greetings and requests and exhortations, and 2 Thessalonians is no exception to the rule. Now, this might seem a little anticlimactic. He's just been writing about the coming of the Lord and the Antichrist and the tribulation and the day of the Lord. But here's his point. It's not this dramatic living for God that keeps you ready for the rapture. You know, some people are really dramatic Christians. They're in one day, and they're out the next. They're up one day, and they're down the next. They're at the altar one day, and they're in the parking lot the next. It's just unreal. It's very dramatic. It's kind of like going to an amusement park and watching the roller coaster. It's just like amazing twists and turns and so dramatic. But Paul's trying to teach these people. It's not that dramatic up and down, in and out. It's not that that keeps you ready for the coming of the Lord. It's this consistent living for God. I, I told Pastor Jack one time we were talking, I said, you know, I, I just like to preach a, a, a message about, you know, no drama Christians. It would be amazing. It would be just wonderful. Just, just no drama. Because some people, they live for drama. They have high highs and they have low lows. Isn't it wonderful to just consistently live for God? Every day's not Disneyland, but you just show up. Every day's not like, woo, but you just show up. You don't feel like you're on the top of the mountain every day, but you just show up. The devil fights you, but you just keep showing up. Paul said, having done all to stand. Sometimes you need to almost look at the devil and say, devil, I'm still here. I may not have accomplished a whole lot today, but guess what? I'm still here, and I'm still living for God, and there's nothing hell can do about it. It's consistent. Christianity that prepares us for everything we face in our lives and keeps us ready for the coming of the Lord. So with all of that in mind, uh, a short little chapter, but let's uh, dive into chapter 3, the final chapter of 2 Thessalonians. He said, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course, literally that it will run and be glorified that it will be exalted, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Paul has two prayer requests that he wants them to pray for as he signs off in this letter. Number one, pray that the word of the Lord will have free course. They live under the, the boot heel of the pagan, brutal Roman empire. But Paul said, I'm just asking you to pray that we can get the word running through our culture, that we can get the word running through our cities, that, that it will have free course. So pray for your pastor. Pray for your preacher. Pray for the Bible study teachers. Pray for the people that are living this. Pray for the people that are giving their testimony to everybody that will listen. Pray that the word of God will have free course. And then I want you to pray that the church will be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. 
I would say it this way, just to put it in something that may, you might remember. Pray that the church will be delivered from wrong men and wicked men. Unreasonable men, wrong men. They're, they may not even be sinners. They might be carnal Christians, but they're wrong. Their attitudes are wrong. Their spirits are wrong. They cause hindrance just by showing up. Pray that the church will be delivered from unreasonable men. They won't listen. They won't cooperate. Pray that we'll be delivered from wrong men and from wicked, from sinful men. He said, all men have not faith. And the word there is, is actually faithfulness. All men are not faithful to God. All men aren't consistently living for God. You can't count on them. But when men are not faithful, let me tell you something. Men might not be faithful, but the Lord is faithful. And it's the Lord who will establish you and he'll keep you from evil. And then he throws them a compliment, which is a huge compliment, by the way. He's just told us there's some men that are wrong. There's some men that are wicked. There's all kinds of people. I'm praying against them. Please pray that the church will be delivered from them. But I have confidence in the Lord touching you, that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And so I'm praying that the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Paul says, men aren't always faithful, but our God is faithful. Oh, and by the way, I have confidence in you that you are faithful. I like to just jump on Paul's bandwagon and say, and I have confidence in you that you are faithful. I'm not looking for a bunch of backsliders next week at CCC because I've watched you people over 20 years now. And, and, and here's what I see. I see faithful saints of God that just keep showing up for church, just keep showing up to pray. And most importantly, they just keep showing up in the battle, living for God consistently every day. So I can count on you. I have confidence in you. And then he uses a military word, and he loves these. I have confidence that you do right now, and you will do in the future, the things which we command you. Now, there's a word you won't hear in many churches, for sure. We command you. That would go over really big in 2020. It's a strong word. It literally means a military order from a superior officer. Paul uses it not once or twice, but three times in this little chapter. He is talking about submission to spiritual authority, of course. He is speaking to them as a protective pastor whose job is to watch for their souls. What if an army were run with the same lack of obedience and lack of discipline that we often see among Christians today? That army would never win a war, ever. If soldiers just attended drill whenever they felt like it, or if recruits disobeyed their officers' orders the way some church members today disobey the word of God, they'd be court-martialed if they were in a real army. Now, yes, a soldier in an earthly army obeys primarily out of loyalty and fear, the fear of the consequences. But a Christian, Paul says, you've got higher motives for obedience in your army. He said, I'm praying that God will direct your hearts into the love of God. The love of God is one of your motives for obeying. And 
your patient waiting for Christ, that you're expecting the coming of the Lord. That's a pretty good motive to stay in tune with the army. He says, now since he's introduced this concept, he has a command. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's his command, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, or who is walking not after the tradition which he received of us. That may be a verse that you've read, but you've never heard taught, because it's probably a little controversial, because again, Paul says, we command you. Paul is going to give them some orders about dealing with a church problem in Thessalonica. Can I just tell you, this comes from whatever, 35 years of experience in, in pastoral ministry. Um, anytime you've got problems, guess what's involved in problems? People. Yeah, you already figured that out. See, it took me 35 years, but not you. You're very sharp. Problems always involve people. And so Paul said, I command you. I'm going to give you some orders about dealing with a church problem, and I expect you to obey my orders because I'm your pastor and we're in an army and you're submitted to your spiritual authority. Now, the directive here is I want you to withdraw yourselves from other church members, from every brother who, quote, walketh disorderly. This means if there's a person who calls themselves a Christian, but their lifestyle is not conforming to the word of God and to the teaching, or he says the tradition of their pastoral leadership, he said you need to withdraw yourself from every brother, every church member that walketh disorderly. These are firm instructions. I want you to withdraw from them. Literally, I want you to avoid association. I want you to keep away from activity with them. In other words, don't be part of what they are doing. If their lifestyle does not reflect the word of God, I don't care if they call themselves a member of First Church of Thessalonica. If their lifestyle does not reflect the word of God and they're calling themselves a Christian, you withdraw. Now, that's controversial today. Remember that the reason the prodigal son returned home is that there was still a home to return to. His father loved him dearly. But the father did not chase the prodigal son to the far country. He did not send him extra money. He did not offer to renegotiate his inheritance. And the father didn't even change the daily routine of running the farm. He kept doing what he was doing. Did he love his son? Oh, yes, he did. Did he pray for his son? Undoubtedly. But that father refused to be part of what his boy was doing. And as a result, the most powerful pull on that boy was remembering the blessing of Father's house when his world caved in. Please notice what he did in the pig pen. He said, the servants in my Father's house, their lives are more blessed than my life. He didn't talk about the love of the Father's house. It was the blessings that came with the Father's house 
that pulled that boy out of the pig pen and caused him to want to go back. And that's why Paul feels the authority to be a little strict in dealing with backsliders. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He says, you need to withdraw a bit. Let them feel the full impact of their bad decision. Don't follow the, how many times have I seen this in the last few decades? That a, a, a sweet little wife will follow her husband away from God and church when he backslides and she'll just go blindly along with him. That's spiritual suicide, not just for her, but for him because she needs to pray that he will feel the loss of the blessings of God and be pulled back to God, not just kind of meander off with him. If somebody else in your family starts skipping church, you know what you need to do? You need to be more faithful than ever. You need to be sitting on the pew every, but, but, but they want me to stay home. Good enough. Tell them no. You tell no to everybody else. Telemarketers, you hang up on them. Some of you argue with them. I'm married to one. She gets those calls and she said, you need to get a life. You need to get a real job. You need to stop. She's a pastor's wife. You say no to everybody else that you don't want to be part of. You shouldn't want to be part of somebody else's backsliding. Paul said if they're going to slip away from Jesus and if they're going to get cold toward God, you can let them go. Do not follow them in that behavior. I don't care what they're doing. You stay faithful to God because the goal here is not to hate on them. The goal is you live for God better than ever before. You show them that the blessings of God are rich in your life and they don't add sorrow and you just be the most faithful, consistent, joyous, prayerful Christian you can be. If they're going to leave like the prodigal son, you let them leave and you pray that they'll miss the blessings of Father's house. Paul said, you let them feel the full impact of their bad decision. Don't protect them. Don't make excuses for them. Don't change what you are doing because they change what they are doing. Listen to pastor. Do not change your lifestyle because they change their lifestyle. Do not change your church attendance because they change their church attendance. You won't hear that very much anymore, but Paul, he nailed it. He said, I command you to do this. Now, we've already learned about the specific problem that was in Thessalonica. Some members of the assembly, they think they've missed the coming of the Lord and they think they're in the great tribulation, but there's others. They've misinterpreted Paul's teachings about the coming of the Lord in the other way. Jesus is coming soon, so we're going to quit our jobs and we're going to live off the generosity of the church. They were idle while other people were working, and yet they expected the good people of God to support them. They had far too much time on their hands, and so they had become meddling gossips and lazy busybodies as a result. And they made excuses for themselves by arguing, well, of course we quit our job. Jesus is coming soon. And Paul said, you let them feel the full impact of that bad decision. Withdraw. 
Don't be going over to their house and helping them out when they quit their job and they just are in rebellion to the man of God and the teaching of God and they're just making excuses. Now, you know when Paul gets really riled up because if he gets really riled up, he will use himself as an example. He doesn't like to do it. He says he doesn't. But he will use himself as an example if he gets really riled up. And he is really riled up. Now, if anybody had a right to be supported by the church, it would have been the leaders who had brought them the gospel and pastored them. And Jesus had taught, the laborer is worthy of his hire, Luke 10 and 7. And so Paul, he starts to use himself as an example here, which means he is really riled up about this. Yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behaved ourselves not, we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. We weren't out of order. We weren't disobeying orders. We weren't out of rank like a soldier out of rank with his army. We were not disorderly. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. If we needed bread, we bought bread. But we worked with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Paul said, I didn't take any money from any of you. I had other churches that supported me when I came to Thessalonica. I didn't need money from you. I didn't take money from you. So you can't say I just came and preached the gospel for money. While Paul was with the Thessalonians, he didn't ask them for anything. And here's why. He wanted to be an example of diligence and he was hoping his example of diligent work would be a contagious. He said, it's not because we have not power. He said, I have a right to expect to be supported by the church if I'm the pastor of the church. It's not because we have not power. But it was to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. This is not just something Paul preaches. This is something Paul lives he gave up his right to financial support for the sake of growing that church, which meant he had to work. And that's why he's upset with Christians that have just quit their job and donned white robes and are sitting out on a mountain outside of Thessalonica waiting for the coming of the Lord, but taking a daily delivery of food from all the other Christians in the church. Paul says in verse 10, even when we were with you, here's this word again, this we commanded you. I gave you orders about this, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Bet you don't have that pinned on your fridge. But it's a Bible verse. The Bible has wonderful things to say about work. Work was part of man's life before sin entered the world. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them tasks to do to keep the garden. We need work to feel fulfilled because God created us to work. And by the way, for anybody that's kind of sitting around waiting for the call of God, have you ever noticed in the Bible that God always called people who were busy working? Every single time. Nobody get called from a hammock in the Bible. Not one. Jesus himself was a carpenter, and Paul worked as a tent maker. The Jews, they honored honest labor, 
And the Jews required every one of their rabbis to have a trade. However, the world had crept in. The Greek culture, they despised manual labor. They left all of that to their slaves. And it was this worldly influence, plus some wrong ideas about the coming of the Lord, that had led some of these Thessalonian believers into this lazy way of life. I'm just going to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back and bail me out. Now, Paul did recognize, notice how he phrases this. Paul recognized that some people could not work. Maybe because of physical handicaps. Maybe because of a season of life with family responsibilities. So this is why he said, if any would not work. If anyone will not work, they won't work. It's not a question of ability. It's a question of willingness. They're not willing to work. When any believer can't work and is in need, it is the privilege and the duty of the church to help them. We read that in 1 John 3.17. But this isn't the case in Thessalonica, and it's not the case with many people today. So Paul says, stop. This is so practical, you're not going to like it. Paul says, Stop giving them handouts. <laughs> Neither should he eat. That's pretty plain. But they're starving. Neither should he eat. But they said they're hungry. Neither should he eat. You have a nice pastor. I've never said that except quoting Paul. But Paul said it. He said, we commanded you this when we were with you. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And at this time of the year, there are hours when the church switchboard lights up like a Christmas tree because it's the most wonderful time of the year. This church loves to help people. We love to help missionaries, but we also love to help people with needs here at home. And we do. And some of the things that make your pastors the most proud are that so many of you, you just kind of come quietly, privately, individually, and you say, I've got something I'd like to give to help somebody, and we make sure that they get it, and that's such a blessing to them. We're always wanting to help people with need. But there are people that they're descendants of these people in Thessalonica because they have an aversion to work. One of my favorite cartoons from years ago, I actually clipped it out and had it for a while. It was of this man... I don't know, he was all crippled up. I can't remember if he was on crutches or whatever. And there was a faith healer that had a big banner. And the faith healer was coming toward him and, and about to lay hands on him. He said, no, don't touch me. I'll lose my worker's compensation or something like that. And at that particular time in the church where I was working, we had a guy just like that. And I wanted to put his name on it and mail it to him. But because I'm a nice guy and I'm not the Apostle Paul, I didn't do that. Paul would have mailed him the cartoon. It amazes me. We get calls, and, and there are some people that have crushing, terrible needs, and we try to do our best to help. There are also some people that they're like these people in Thessalonica. They know how to milk the system, and um, those calls are anywhere from sad to irritating to downright funny. Like the guy that called me a few years ago and said, I need this many hundred dollars tonight. It was like late at night. He called here in the evening, and I just happened to be here. I need this many hundred dollars because... I've got to be in Montreal tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for brain surgery. And I thought, you need brain surgery, but it's not happening six hours from now in Montreal. <laughs> it's not happening. But anyway, 
Y'all good? Am I messing up your Christmas spirit? By the way, for any of you that are watching this later, uh, it's almost Christmas. We're just a little over a week from Christmas. So we've got a team right now that they're out passing out things, and you've been so generous, and you've given mittens, and you've given all kinds of things. Thank you. This is what we do. Paul's not talking about a genuine need. Paul's not talking about somebody that has fallen on hard times. Paul recognized that some people cannot work. He's talking about people that will not work, and they're in the church, and they're taking advantage of other people's goodness. And here's why he doesn't like them sitting around. You ready for this? It gets worse. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. They're like those soldiers that won't obey orders. They're disorderly. They're creating havoc. They are working not at all, but are busybodies. Oh, I love that word, and I'm so glad it's in the Bible. Imagine if the Apostle Paul could have seen the many ways that people have to waste time in the 21st century. Endless hours watching sports and Netflix on big screen TVs. Countless hours talking and texting on handheld devices. Limitless scrolling through the wasteland of social media. If Paul could have seen some of the ways in which people waste time today, we would have third and fourth Thessalonians. The word busybody in Scripture, because you're wondering, it means to busy oneself with meaningless, needless, pointless, useless, senseless matters, or to be overly inquisitive about the affairs of others. That's a busy body. Their little body is so busy going from table to table in the restaurant, text to text, conversation to conversation, and corner to corner in the church foyer. They are a busy little body. And that's why Paul has a command for them. Would you help me and say command? It's not an option. He said, I got a command for you. Start working and stop meddling. Can I say it in 21st century vernacular? Get a job and get a life. <laughs> that plain enough? <laughs> Don't clap. It encourages me. <laughs> and he does it again. Verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ... Here's what those people should do. That with quietness they work and eat your own bread. The faithful saints in Thessalonica had been discouraged by the conduct of these lazy, careless, backslidden, meddling Christians. See, sin in the life of a believer always affects the spiritual momentum of a church. Paul taught elsewhere to the Galatians, a little leaven, a little yeast, leaveneth the whole lump. You put a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough and it affects the whole lump. So these people are dead weight in an assembly. 
And here's why. They've got all kinds of time for trivial pursuits. They've even got time, some of them, for dabbling in sin, but no time to help their church. And it's getting worse the closer we get to the rapture. Because we have never heard more people say, I'm so busy. And if you looked at their media diet and the way they spend their spare time, it's not that I'm so busy. It's I'm so exhausted because I'm staying up till 2 a.m. on social media every night or I'm watching Netflix for four hours every evening or I'm doing whatever. We've never had a generation that has claimed to be so busy and has so little time to do the right things. And it's getting worse the closer we get to the rapture. So Paul says, I got two pieces of advice. Here's what to do about you, and here's what to do about them. First of all, let's talk about you. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Keep on serving Jesus. Keep on praying. Keep on living for God. Keep on being consistent no matter what anybody else does. Paul says that very same phrase to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 9. Also, right after he warns that other church about sin and rebellion against spiritual authority, that's creeping in. He said, I know there's people that they don't respect spiritual authority. They're, they're working against the church, even though they claim to be part of the church. I know, but don't you get weary in well-doing. For in due season, you will reap if you don't faint. If you don't give up, God will see you through. Paul's saying emphatically, he's using the word, I command you. I'm giving you orders here. Do not change what you are doing because they changed what they were doing. Do not change your lifestyle because they changed their lifestyle. Don't dial down your spiritual uh, impetus because they dialed down their spiritual life. Do not do that. Don't be weary in well-doing. That's what you do about you. Oh, and here's what you do about them. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, here's what you do about them. Note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here's what Paul says. This is Paul's instruction concerning lazy, careless, backslidden Christians. And these instructions, brothers and sisters, are vastly different than what you would hear in nearly every church today. Here's what Paul says. If you see someone that's just spiritual dead weight, if you see someone that all they've got time to do is meddle in everybody else's business, if you see someone that's spiritually lazy, if you see someone that's opposing spiritual authority, the pastor in your church, here's what you do. Number one, take note of them. Know who they are. <laughs> We've laughed about this in our family. Uh, if you ever hear one of my kids ever say at, a, at an anniversary celebration, at a funeral, if you ever hear one of my kids say, Dad never said anything bad about anybody, they're lying. I just want to tell you. Because Dad does say bad stuff about people. Don't hang around those kind of people when they were teenagers. 
You don't do what they do. You don't go where they go. You are not going over to their house. to No, you are not because that's not a good influence. So if you ever hear anybody say, Dad never said a bad word about anybody, they are lying through their teeth. Dad loves to talk about good, faithful saints of God. Dad loves to talk about people that love Jesus and love their church and love their pastors and love the movement of the Spirit. That's who Dad likes to say good things about. The rest of it, I'll tell you the truth right up front. Paul said, number one, note them. Number two, have no company with them. Literally, the word is companionship. Don't you be buddy-buddy with somebody that is backsliding. Don't be buddy-buddy with somebody that has nothing but bad to say about your church. Don't be buddy-buddy with somebody that can't submit to spiritual authority. You will hurt yourself, and you're not doing them any good either. Have no company with them. And he even says, why would you do that? That he may be ashamed. Let them feel the shame. Let them, it's like the prodigal son. Let them feel the weight of what they are doing. But while he says all of that, he also says this. Before you get ready to just trounce somebody after church, he says, don't count them as an enemy. Do admonish them as a brother. Paul's not talking about somebody that failed. He's not talking about somebody that made a mistake. He's not talking about somebody that got snared up in sin and they're weeping in the altar with tears of repentance. He's not talking about that. He's talking about somebody who is living in open rebellion to spiritual authority and doesn't care what the Word of God says. Even when, he's not talking about a mistake or a failure. He's talking about rebellion. And even with rebellion... He says, the goal is still to get them back to God. So, don't have companionship. Don't have fellowship with them, but you can still leave the friendship option open. So let me be clear, because Paul is clear, but we're separated through his Greek writing to King James to today. So let me be clear. Fellowship means, it means to have in common. So here's what Paul's trying to say. For obedient, godly saints to offer to disobedient, rebellious Christians the same fellowship they give to other godly, obedient saints, that's like giving approval to their sin. So don't do it. You don't need to be buddy-buddy with somebody that calls themselves a Christian but they have spurned everything that you love about Scripture, everything you love about your church, everything you love about God and His Word. There's a lot of voices out there today. There are preachers and churches and entire denominations espousing things that the Bible calls sin and even abomination, and they're saying we all should go there. You can't have fellowship with that. You cannot. You will hurt yourself, and you're not helping them. But Paul knows that there's a tendency among human beings to always take anything the preacher gives them and go to an extreme with it. So he says, don't treat these offenders like enemies. Don't do that. The goal is their restoration. The goal is to get them back 
to father's house just like it was the goal for the father to get the prodigal son back home. He prayed for him to come back. He wanted him to come back. But there's one thing that father did not do. He did not go visit the prodigal son in his pig pen. And that's what Paul is trying to say. You've got to be very careful who you align your spirit with in the last of the last days and the end of the end times. If you sense a disrespect for spiritual authority, if you sense a cynical attitude toward the word of God, you need to not have, Paul says, do not have company with them. You be very careful. And so we close. You say, wow, really? Why is Paul writing about unruly, disorderly, rebellious Christians in a letter about the coming of the Lord? For the very same reason that a military communique would write about unruly soldiers when that army was about ready to face their most important battle. Paul said we've got to be ready for the coming of the Lord so who you're letting speak into your spirit and speak into your head and speak into your mind and speak into your life. That is exponentially more important now than it ever has been. We've got to be ready for his coming. And you're not ready for his coming if you're rebelling. One of your most valuable weapons against the enemy in the last days. I'll say it because I'm teaching through Paul's writing. It's uncomfortable to say, but it's true nonetheless. One of your most valuable weapons against the enemy in the last days is submission to your spiritual Authority. What Paul's image here, and he uses the word command multiple times. His image is keep in rank, keep in step, don't break rank, don't break the pace, keep marching, keep fighting, stay in step with the army of God. He told the Corinthians, he said, let all things be done decently and in order. Stay in rank, keep marching, don't break the pace, don't go off on your own little excursion, stay in step with the army of the Lord. And Paul closes his epistle by telling us that when believers, when individuals in the church get their hearts in order, then it's easy to have order in the church. And spiritual order brings peace. Now the Lord of peace himself Give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. And he closes because he'd had those people impersonating him. He said, this is the salutation of Paul with mine own hand. And this signature that you're seeing here, this is the token in every epistle. So I write, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul. You, you were doing so good. It was so exciting. It was so wonderful. You were talking about the rapture and the coming of the Lord. And Paul would answer you, yes, I was. Yes, it's our blessed hope. Yes, it's exciting. But if you don't stay in step with your spiritual authority, if you don't stay in step with your church, you're going to miss the coming of the Lord. So it's not anticlimactic. It's your personal assignment in light of the coming of the Lord. Check your heart. 
Check your motives. Check your associations. Check your thought life. Check your activities. Check your schedule. Don't be one of those people like those in Thessalonica that have got unlimited time to give to everything else and no time to be involved in the kingdom of God. Don't be one of those people that you're so busy with your job or you're so busy not having a job. Don't be one of those people, but you don't have any time to say, Pastor Jack, I'd like to help with something around the church. Don't be one of those people, especially in light of the fact that the coming of the Lord is approaching like a freight train. Be ready. Don't be rebellious. Be submitted. Submission, the word that so many people love to hate, submission to spiritual authority is one of the most effective and powerful weapons you have in the end times. Would you just lift your hands for a moment? I think I'm just about done. I may need another minute or two. But would you just lift your hands and lift your voices? And if you can't think of anything else to pray right now, just thank God for his word. It, it always kind of runs right down where we live, even if sometimes it chafes or it's a little awkward or uncomfortable. The word of God just kind of digs right down to where we live. And, and it's so important to remember what the word of God says to us. I worship you, Jesus, and I thank you, God. I thank you, God. I thank you, Jesus. Lord God, right now at the end of this lesson and at the end of this series, I pray for these wonderful people. Like Paul wrote to his friends, I say over them, I have confidence in them. I have confidence in them that they're not rebellious. I have confidence in them that they love you and your word and your kingdom. I have confidence in them that they're going to stand strong and consistent in the end times. But Jesus, I also know that even in great churches, the devil would like to get into somebody's heart, somebody's mind, somebody's life. Sin seeks secrecy. Sin seeks isolation. And the devil would love to get one of your precious people off by themselves and attack them, and pummel them, and weaken them, and wear them down. And so I pray like you prayed for Peter, that their faith fails not, that their faith stays strong. Jesus, I want to go to heaven with everybody that is in this room, and many more. I want to go to heaven not just with these people that are looking at me, but with all of their loved ones that are in their family and with their friends and with their neighbors and with many from our city and with many from the far-flung regions of the world where we have the privilege of supporting missionaries. I want to go to heaven with them. Jesus, keep us true. Keep us secure. Keep us consistent. Jesus, help us to be ready for the next appointment on your calendar and let nothing that is on our calendar or in our lives interfere with being ready for that great day. I bless these people in your name and I pray your protection over them 
in this treacherous time in which we live. When the world is in tumult and nobody seems to know what's going to happen next, keep us true. In Jesus' name, I pray. Would you lift up whatever prayer you've got in you right now, and then we'll be dismissed. Thank you for being part of Bible study tonight. Lift it up to the Lord. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. There is a witness of the Holy Ghost in this room right now to the Word of God. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. It is such a high honor and such a great privilege to teach you folks the Word of God. Thank you for being faithful to the house of God. Thank you for being part of our series. And what do you say? Let's live every moment living in light of the end. 